Okay, I'm Harlan. How are you? I'm a compulsive overeater. And I'm really, really glad to be here. And um, I came here pretty naturally. My mother and father were compulsive overeaters. I was born in Chicago, and I'm sure that the very first thing I heard was them screaming at each other. My mother was mentally ill. My mother had no clue she was pregnant. My mother had three very distinct personalities. And these personalities could come upon her with no warning, with nothing, just suck in air, and she was a different person. She looked different, she acted different, and she was different. And the three personalities that my mother had were screaming, raving lunatic, and three-year-old person, and a completely normal human being that you would look at and think, she's pretty together. You never knew what you were going to get, and you never knew when you were going to get it, and you never knew how long it was going to last. And I spent a lot of my life trying to herd cats. I spent a lot of my time trying to make her be that third desirable personality. My father was 54 years old on the day that I was born. And he was done, really, with a lot of things in his life. So I never really got to do the things with my dad that a lot of little boys do with their dad. I never played baseball with my dad. I never rode bikes with my dad. I never did any of those things because he was old. And he was roughly the age I am now. I'm 61. He was 60 when I entered grammar school. My father came to this country under horrific conditions. He came here with bullets in his shoulder. He came here because of the murder and mayhem that was occurring in Europe around the turn of the century. This is prior to World War II, when anti-Semitism in Europe was through the ceiling, and his entire family, except for a sister, uh, two sisters, were massacred in their home while at, in the middle of the night while they slept. People came in and killed them, and he got away. He got away because his brother Charlie shoved him out the door and said, run, run, run. And he ran and he got to the shipyard, which they had sort of rehearsed, and he had bullets in him. And a guy, instead of, you know, turning him in, he said, here, here, get in the lifeboat. And because of that man's kindness, I'm alive today. My father was a giving, loving man. He was a wonderful man. He spoke very little English, and he spoke English only when he had to. My father was deathly afraid of the world that he was born into, and he was absolutely certain that they were going to come and kill us at any moment. I remember very distinctly many, many hundreds of times he would wake up screaming in the middle of the night with nightmares that they were going to come and kill us. And I remember as a little kid <clears throat> when uh, Jack Ruby killed Oswald, after Oswald killed Kennedy, he was absolutely sure that the end was near because as soon as he heard Jack Ruby's name, he knew that this was a guy from Chicago and he knew that the guy was Jewish. So he says, they're going to come and kill us for sure because this is the guy that killed Oswald and Oswald killed Kennedy. My father uh, and mother were people who probably never should have been married. They probably should have never been in the same room as one another. They showed their love for one another with pots and pans flying through the air. And they were very, they said things to each other you wouldn't say to Adolf Hitler. They, they were very, very cold and cruel to one another. I never saw them be as much as cordial to one another, so I can't even imagine that I was conceived. Um, from the time I was about three years old, four years old, I was the head of the house. I think the verdict is in. That's the judge going on the gavel. And by the time I was about three years old, I was the head of the house. 
My mother would come to me and she'd say, I hate your father. The only reason I live here is because of you. My father would come to me when I was three, four years old and say, I hate your mother. The only reason I live here is because of you. Hello. And, hello. And uh, I, think they're my, I think they're still on our speakers, so that may have to be adjusted. <laughs> so um, the bottom line is, is that... Um, I want to just know if Huckleberry Hound was going to get away or if uh, Boo Boo and Yogi were going to get away with the picnic basket because Ranger Smith was coming around the corner. And I was deciding things like how we were going to pay the electric bill and how I was going to keep them from killing one another and how I was going to manufacture some way of making my mother stay in that normal personality. And I was three years old. This is stuff that was way above me, and I'm 61, and it still is above me. And how was I going to make my dad feel safe? safe? How was I going to have my dad feel like he could live in the world and be okay that nobody was going to come and kill him? My father had um, a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder, which we didn't know at the time. He could be walking down the street and hear a sound, and he was right back there. And he saw his sister's jaw shot out from her skull right in front of him, and, he, and that sound haunted him his entire life. And he saw things that he shouldn't see. And when he was 14 years old, he had to come to this country and make a new life. Is that why I'm a compulsive overeater? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I am a compulsive overeater because of factors that I was born with and an illness that set me apart from normal people that have nothing to do with any of these things. But this is who I am and this is what I am and this is how I came into this world. Um, I started eating compulsively from the moment I came into the world. I am not one of these people that woke up one day and I had just had a baby or I was 30 or I was 50 or whatever it is and I started noticing that I could not control the amount of food I ate. I have been out of control where food is concerned and my earliest, earliest, earliest memories of life is when they were screaming at each other, they were fighting with one another and all of the sudden I would start eating and the noise became very soft and the furor and the tension in the home became very, very diminished. And the more Rice Krispies I could put in my mouth, covered with a layer of sugar, covered with a layer of uh, M&Ms with peanuts. What is, I don't know what the purpose of the other M&Ms is. I only ate the ones with peanuts, but I don't know. Knock your socks off. But if, when I would eat that, then the noise would become very, very soft that I was living with in my head. Should we have them take care of this before we continue? I'm going to unleash Rowan on them, and that will fix their wagon. That will fix their wagon. Oh, my gosh. I doubt it. They would have all come in here then. They would have all come in here. That's um, well, give me a chance to open up my book. Yes. Yes. 
Well, I used to lie a lot when the truth would have served me better, actually. I think we can continue. I think we're okay. See, when you unleash Roanne on them, they're screwed. They're absolutely screwed. They're dead at that point. Okay, so when I would eat massive quantities of food, see, I knew it. I was sending the right, we were sending, God was sending the right person, not me. But when I would eat massive quantities of food, everything in my life that was troublesome became very, very soft. And it wasn't as as, as present in my head. And I started noticing without being aware of it intelligently. Thank you. I started noticing without an awareness, a cerebral awareness of it, that food was doing something for me, not to me, for me, that it doesn't seem to do for other people. And that there was some sort of benefit, some sort of hook that I had with the food that my friends didn't seem to have. And they could be very, very benign to food. They could have a very minimal, if any, interest in it at all. And I started noticing that I was completely, completely interested in it. And I never really got a chance to not be interested in it where they would have periods of time during their day when it was the absolute furthest thing from their mind. And I thought from a very early age on that they were born with some level of willpower because I couldn't imagine that they didn't want to eat Kit Kat bars, that they didn't want to eat chunky bars, that they didn't want to eat French fries. I just believed that they had some Lake Michigan size amount of willpower that I couldn't tap into. And that they were strong and I was weak. And they were good and I was bad. And they were better than me, and so I became very jealous of them. I became very, very jealous of them to the point of rage, with a point of I couldn't understand why, no matter what I did, I couldn't look like them and be like them. And when I was about two or three years old, I have vivid memories of people yelling and screaming at my parents about how much food I was eating and how fat I was getting. And it embarrassed me because I knew that it hurt them. And then when I got to be about five years old, six years old, they stopped yelling at my parents and they started yelling directly at me. And when they started yelling directly at me, it was very scary. And I learned at a very early age to just shut down emotionally. I would just completely disassociate emotionally and I sort of knew that what they were saying had elements of bedrock truth to it that they were telling me things I needed to know. Like don't eat so much, you're going to feel better. Fat boys don't get girlfriends. Boy, I found that out. Fat boys don't get good jobs. I found that out. Fat boys don't look good. Fat boys don't this and fat boys don't that. And only thin boys get girlfriends and thin boys get good jobs. And I found all those things to be true. But there was one thing they never said to me. There was one thing they never imparted on me. And that is, how do I get from where I am to where you're telling me I should 
go other than just don't eat so much, you'll feel better. Other than lose weight, you'll feel better. Lose weight, you'll be better. Because that's not helping me. That doesn't seem to work for people like me. Maybe it works for people like you. Doesn't seem to work for people like me. I just wish it would. Oh, how I wish it would work for people like me. But I've tried that, and I can't get there from where I stand today. And then when I was about nine years old, 1963, I went to the doctor, Dr. Jacobson, Milwaukee Avenue and Devon Avenue in Chicago. It butts up against Niles, but it's still in Chicago, trust me. Um, and I went to Dr. Jacobson's office, and he was screaming at my mother in Yiddish, and my mother was screaming back at him in Yiddish. And I'm sitting there going, I hope I get a cherry sucker on the way out of here. <laughs> because I like the cherry ones the best, the red ones. And my mother and my doctor decided to put me on 1,500 milligrams of amphetamine a day. Now, the reason I know that I was on 1,500 milligrams of amphetamine a day is because through the travels and through the moves and through my divorce and through all the places I've been to, I still have somewhere in that house, unless Emma ate it. Emma's my German shepherd. Uh, I have a bottle of those, not of the pills. There's no pills in there, but I have a bottle, and it says on there, 500 milligrams of some babubadide or something, and it's an amphetamine and it kills your appetite. And boy, does it kill your appetite. Holy mackerel, does it kill your appetite. Now, you sleep about 15 minutes a month. <clears throat> and you're, that I can remember the temples of my head going ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. And people would talk to me and I, I can't hear what they're saying. It sounded like Charlie Brown from the... And I couldn't, I, I, my grades were like terrible, but I didn't eat. Oh man, I didn't eat. Holy moly, didn't eat a thing. But when those pills wore off, oh my God, when those pills wore off and you crashed from those amphetamines, I could eat most of Wisconsin, all of Illinois, and parts of Indiana before I would wake up. I mean, that thing was powerful. Whoa, wee. And then some of the stuff, when I was about 10, and I lost weight, and some of the stuff started coming out about these amphetamines and what they were doing to people, especially little kids like me. I wasn't little, but I was a kid. And um, so they switched me to another amphetamine, and instead of taking this one three times a day, this was a four-time-a-day thing, and instead of pink pills, they were blue pills with exactly the same effect. I, could, I, I don't know what was going on, but like in my brain, I'd say to myself, you've already said that 400 times. Why are you saying it again? And I, I can't stop saying it. I can't stop saying the same thing again and again and again. And I'm getting in fist fights at school. I'm an eater. I am not a fighter. Let me just tell you that right now. I might fight you if you try to get one of my french fries off my plate. But other than that, I'm really not a fighter. Trust me. I'm an eater. Now, I'm a, I come in peace. I'm just a fat boy. Okay. So, okay. Well, I need it for the tape. So the bottom line is, is that I'm getting in fights at school, and then I started getting beyond 10 years old. And beyond 10 years old, what starts happening is you want to look like the other boys. You want to be like the other boys. And you want the attention of the girls. And that's when life started getting away from me faster and faster. And the more I tried to grab onto it, I couldn't do it. I just could not grab it. And it just 
faster and faster. And all the boys were wearing trimsters and Levi's. And I just wanted to buy my clothes at a place on Devon Avenue called Mr. Junior's. And I couldn't do that. I had to wear clothes that went out of style during the Great Depression. And my dad would take me to Albany Park, which is an old neighborhood in Chicago, very old Jewish neighborhood. And if it fit me and we could afford it, that's what I had. You know, if it covered me, that's what I had to wear. So I was wearing stuff like that John Boy Walton would wear on the Waltons or something like that in the 1960s, and that made me feel kind of odd too. And so life was getting past me very, very quickly. And as I entered into my teenage years, another thing started happening, and the only thing that gave me some sort of an edge against this was eating massive quantities of food, and that is my mother and father started dying. My mother's greatest ambition in life was to become an invalid and die. My mother had a sense in her heart that there was something wrong with her mentally. My mother had a sense that there was something very wrong. And I kept expecting that one day she would just wake up, just boom, boom, slap her in the face, and that somehow she would wake up and she would just become normal. And I think that most people have that. And it says in the book, book, big book, it says, they wait for us to wake from our lethargy and assert our power of will. And I was waiting for my mother to do that. But she started going on dialysis for her kidneys. And she had the infections in the shunts in the 1970s. Dialysis was a lot different than it is today. It's still not great, but it's, it was a lot different. And she'd start to get infections in her shunt. And my dad, when I was 17 years old, I had to go to the oncologist's office, Dr. Silverman, at Edgewater Hospital in Chicago, and Dr. Silverman told me, your father has cancer. He has prostate cancer, and he has lung cancer, and he has cancer of his uh, esophagus. My father was a very heavy smoker, along with being a compulsive overeater. He was a very heavy smoker, and I'm 17 years old. I'm just driving. I have nobody. I don't have brothers and sisters. I don't have aunts, uncles, or cousins. I don't have grandparents. I don't have any of that. And so I'm hearing things, once again, that a 17-year-old is really not prepared to hear. And so I, he told me, Dr. Silverman told me when I was 17 years old, your father's got about seven years left. He told me that in June of that year, and in November, seven years later, my father passed away. Before that happened, my mother passed away when I was 22. She died, and she died after being an amputee from diabetes. She died a miserable, nasty death, a miserable, nasty death. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to talk a lot more about my relationship with my mother and what it's like today and how it got to be that way. But for at that moment when she died... I found it almost difficult to be sad. I found that I was almost playing a role in a show by feigning some sort of sorrow because she had been the bane of my existence my entire life. I blamed her for everything. Her mental illness was the reason I, was, I didn't have a pony, and her mental illness was the reason I wasn't in the Beatles, and her mental I mean, whatever it was, I blamed her, and if she wasn't mentally ill, I wouldn't be the way I am today. I've since, and again, I'll talk a lot more about that tomorrow morning when we get to the, to the uh, eight and nine part of it, or I'll talk about that this afternoon too. But the bottom line is, is that when I was 24, my father passed away. 
Now, the very last lucid conversation that I had with my mother, and I'm speeding through my story. Some of you have heard it online. Some of you haven't. I need to speed through it because we have a lot of stuff to cover today, and we have a lot of stuff to cover tomorrow, and we're kind of limited in the time that we have, even though it may not seem so yet we are. But when, when my mother died, the last lucid conversation I had with my mother was this. And I was about 500 pounds when they died, and my mother was about 270, my father was about 270, I was well over five. So we were about 1,100 pounds between three people. You know, I made up for what, you know, what would have hit them over the 300. So we were about 1,100 pounds between three people. But the last lucid conversation I had with my mother was in Evanston Hospital in Chicago, in, in Evanston, sorry, and uh, she said to me, you were such a beautiful boy, and I had such high hope for you. She said, but you're a slave to the food. She said through tears, she was crying. She wanted so much for me to live a life that she would have wanted for me. And I was too young and too dumb to really appreciate that what she was bequeathing me in, that, in those last moments was all the love for me that she could muster and she said, please, Harlan, find a way not to eat so much. Find a way so that you don't have to be a slave to food. She'd say, there's nobody to take care of you now. There is nobody that can help you now. You're going to have to stand on your own two feet, and you're going to have to put down the food to, to do that. The very last conversation I had with my father in November, November the, th the 11th, 1978, I had a conversation with him, and he said to me, my son, which means my son, which means the Balachovskas were the people that came to round you up to make sure you could be killed more efficiently. And he said that the food was your Balachovska. It came and it took you to kill you. And it came, and he said... He said, in my eyes, you could have been the president of the United States. I saw so much in you. He says, but the food came, and the food is a merdelachazach. A merdelachazach in Yiddish means a murderous thing. You're going to learn a little Yiddish this morning. See, you didn't think so. You're going to learn a little Yiddish expression. He says, dein fressen is a merdelachazach afendu, which means the, the, the eating, essen is to eat, fressen is to overeat, compulsively overeat, like a glutton. And he'd say, it was the murder of you. It was the murder of you. He'd say, find a way, my son. Find a way, my son, not to eat so much. And he died on November 11th, 1978. And as we walked off the cemetery, a very dear friend of mine, her, his younger sister, who's also a very dear friend of mine, she turned to me. I can see her now. She turned to me on the lawn of the cemetery and she said, Mr. G is safe. They will never get him now. And there's nothing they can do to him now. He died of natural causes in this country. And what were the odds of that? Considering where he had come from, his favorite song was the Star Spangled Banner. And the greatest thing he believed was that I was an American. And I remember distinctly when I went in 1972, Nixon versus McGovern, I went and he sat on the curb on Troy and Rosemont, and he cried on the curb because I was voting in an election. And that one person takes office and one person leaves office, there's not a shot fired and no one died, was an amazing thing to him. He couldn't believe. He used to love it when I would take him up 
on the tollway to Wisconsin, it would say, you're leaving Illinois and you're entering Wisconsin. You don't need papers and you don't, there's no checkpoints and there's no, you can just do that all day long because you want to. And this is what he left me. I don't say it because I want to bring up politics. I'm not talking about politics. I'm just talking about who I am because of who he was. And he died. Now, is it odd or is it God that just weeks after he died, just weeks after he died in November of 78, by February of 1979, I am writing bad checks. I was writing them for a few years. I've written tens of thousands of dollars worth of bad checks. I'm lying when the truth would have served me better. I'm living in filth and squalor. I am living in a body that is betraying me. I can't do the simplest things in life. I can't wear underpants. I have towels shoved between layers of flab to keep the flab from rubbing together so that the contact dermatitis doesn't make me cry. I have legs that are not in the same zip code. I had so much fat on my body that it stunk constantly. I peed in my pants from the moment I got up until the moment I went to bed. I crapped in my pants. The farting was incessant. I was eating 24 hours a day or not. Well, I was eating while I was up. My food habit, not my hooker habit, not my cocaine habit, not my drugs or gambling habit. My food habit in the 1970s was about 100 to $150 a day. My income is nowhere near that. I'm robbing Peter while I'm robbing Paul. I'm robbing the, my friend's parents. I'm writing bad checks to my dad's creditors. I'm doing shameful, hurtful, horrible things, and I'm doing them to myself. I broke a lot of furniture in my life. I couldn't go to the movies for decades because I couldn't fit in the seats. I couldn't walk. I couldn't get in a car. I couldn't get out of a car. I had one pair of pants, size 80. There, and I lived in the second largest city in the country, Chicago, Illinois. You didn't overtake us here until 1970. I lived in the second largest city in the country, and there was one guy that could get me pants. Don't believe when they say big and tall. That's only up to size 60. But the bottom line is, I don't know how I survived emotionally. This illness emasculated me physically and emotionally. This illness wrought hell into my life. This illness did things to me you wouldn't do to your worst enemy. And I found out that this illness is mind over matter. It doesn't mind taking you out and you don't matter. This illness is a vicious terrorist. Now, my mother and father must have had great stock with God because I didn't kill myself, which I wanted to, and I didn't want to live in this world because I didn't know how. I didn't know how to function in this world. I didn't know how to do the simple things that people do, like clean their house and pay their bills and get a good job and, and go to the toilet without breaking the seat. I didn't know how people did those things. And I did things to myself you wouldn't do to your worst enemy. And I didn't know how to stop. And I had been to Weight Watchers. 
and I was a Weight Watchers king. And I went down to the Congress Hotel downtown, and they sashayed me with this thing. And I, hey, there I am. I was like Miss Illinois, you know. And I was a tops. You don't remember tops? It's, I don't think it's around anymore. T O P S. I did lose weight with AIDS. Remember those candies? AIDS candies. Go try to market that today, right? I really. Okay, I did lose weight with AIDS. I did everything and anything you could imagine to stem the hurricane of this illness, and I could not stop its destructive force on my own, and I gave it everything I had. And in February, just weeks after Dad died, in February of 1979, two very dear friends, one of which still is... In my life today, she lives just a few blocks from me in Scottsdale, Arizona. She is the mother of one of my very dear friends. She and one of her friends pushed their way past the pizza boxes, past the milk dud boxes, past the Kit Kat wrappers, past the Butterfinger wrappers, and the M&Ms with peanut wrappers. I do not know what the purpose of these other M&Ms is. Maybe perhaps somebody can explain that to me one day. I don't know. But anyway, and they said... You're coming with us to Overeaters Anonymous. I was not exactly a fireball of willingness, let me tell you. <laughs> but I owed this lady's husband a lot of money. So it was either go or have the screws turned on me. So I went. It was February the 2nd, 1979. It was the Orchard Mental Health Center on Niles Center and Gross Point Road in Skokie, Illinois. And you know you're in Skokie, Illinois because there's a Rosenblum on every corner. <laughs> And you, I went in there, and I went to meetings. I ate my way to the meetings. I prayed for a Russian airstrike during the meetings, and I ate my way home. And I didn't want to be there. And in 1979, 1980, 1981, 82, I went to meetings. And then I graduated. I had a beautiful ceremony. You should have been there. And I had the same kind of ceremony that most of you have had. You, you, know, you walk down the aisle and you know, you're having your graduation from OA and then somebody says, welcome to McDonald's. Can I take your order, please? So that was my graduation ceremony. Perhaps some of you had the same one. And I graduated from OA and I had lost some weight and I had heard some things. And this time I was really unleashed. Now my weight was beyond 500, beyond 600. Now it's at 700. Now I'm 700 pounds. I'm not living, I'm existing. I smelled like the zoo. I looked like it too. And now I came back in 1986 and I heard some things. Oh, never heard that before. Oh, really? That made sense. I heard some things in the big book that made some sense to me and they started to affect me in ways that they never affected me before because I was ready to hear them. I was ready to hear them. And somebody pointed out something to me, and it's on page 58 of the big book, and it's what he called step zero. And it says very simply, if you want what we have, and you are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. He called that step zero. I still do. If you want what we have, what is it we have, he said to me one day at the Lincoln Park Alano Club. He stopped me and he says, what are you here for? And I said, I'm here for a meeting. He said, why? I said, because I'm supposed to come to the meeting. He said, wrong answer. 
And he says, why are you here? What do we have that you seem to want? And he said to me, tell me your answer. And I said, well, those people in there are not eating. He said, that's not enough. Go to Weight Watchers. They're not eating there either. Go to Tops. They're not eating there either. He pointed out to me that there were people in Overeaters Anonymous that were not eating compulsively and that they were doing so happily. That they didn't want the food. And one of the things, one of the concepts that we're going to cover today and tomorrow is the vast cavern of difference between dieting with group support and recovery. We're going to talk this morning, this afternoon, and tomorrow about the vast difference between those two concepts. And if you go to a lot of the meetings that I've been to, you see a lot of people that are just dieting with group support. And that's why they'll go down in weight and up in weight and down in weight and up in weight. And some of you have been there too, and I can tell. Some of you are still awake, but from the ones that are awake, I can see in your faces that you have been in that cycle of just using OA as another diet club. Because that's all you knew was to restrict on your own. And we're going to talk this morning about the vast difference between those two concepts. And then I saw something else too. He showed me something on page XX of the big book. XX in the big book is in the forward to the second edition, and it says, of 100 people that came into Alcoholics Anonymous, 50 of them recovered at once. And of the remaining 50, 25 came in and recovered, and among the 25 that remained, they showed marked improvement. Now, that's 75% recovery, isn't it? Now, it has been my honor and privilege to have traveled this country and Canada doing big book studies in service to this magnificent life-giving program. And I am honored to tell you that I have done these retreats and conventions in over half the states in the United States. I'm born and raised in Chicago. I know what the meetings are like there. I lived in Eugene, Oregon for nine years. Go Ducks. But I lived there for nine years, and I've lived in Scottsdale, Arizona now for 13 years. And I know what meetings are like. Now, we can't claim 75% recovery. We can't claim 50% recovery. We can't claim 20% recovery. We can't claim 2% recovery because we have taken this program and what we have been addicted to for generations is reinventing the wheel. This is the program. And when we do it this way, and I'm holding the big book in my hands for those listening at home, this is the program of Overeaters Anonymous. This is the basic text. And every time we water this down... With other Narishkeit, Narishkeit is foolishness, Jews, help the non-Jews. Okay, every time we water it down with Narishkeit, we are going to recover at less and less of a rate. We are now in the throes 
of the biggest health epidemic since the dust bowl of the depression with starvation. We are in a situation today where the morbid obesity and type 2 diabetes rates in this country are through the ceiling and we're sitting in Overeaters Anonymous meetings with four people and five people and six people and we're losing meetings, not a lot of them like we were, but we're losing some meetings and we're sitting there with people where it's the blind leading the blind. Pick this book up and do what it says, and we can come back to some of those numbers. We can bolster the level of recovery in the room for those there and those not there yet. All we need to do is do it this way. This is the way. And then he showed me something else. He showed me something that really honked me off because I had a very adversarial relationship with God because he didn't bring me a pony. And he didn't give me Robin Laura Petrie for parents. And he didn't give me, if you're under a certain age, Google them. But if he didn't give me Robin Laura Petrie for parents, he didn't give me a pony, and he didn't make me thin, and I couldn't go to homecoming, and I didn't get to go to the dance, and I didn't get to, I went on my first date with a girl. I was 35 years old. And so I was pretty honked off at God. And then he pointed out the thesis line of the big book on page 45. It says the main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problem. Now we're going to reiterate this in Bill's story in the second half of Bill's story when we talk about how step two came into the program. And step two and ten are the most underutilized steps. Three and four are the most misunderstood but 2 and 10 are the foundations by which we live. 2 is the foundation on which we build everything. Because the steps are divided into four distinct sections. They're divided into four distinct sections. Admission, submission, restitution, and construction. We're going to go through all that later on. Admission, submission restitution, and construction. The basis of the entire submission begins in two, that there is a power greater than myself. Now, there are theologians, muses, there are clergymen, poets, there are musicians, authors, that are going to philosophize today about what God is and what God is not. There's two things I need to know about God. There is one, and it's not me. There is one, and it's not me. And based on that, if I have a willingness to believe, a willingness to believe that there is a power greater than myself, I'm on my way. So what we're going to talk about this morning is we're going to talk about what this illness is. Now, just to give you my statistics, which are not that important really at all, I've lost a little over 500 pounds, and I have, I have 16 and a half years of current abstinence. I've gone in and out. I've got 36 years in program, but I've got 16 and a half years of abstinence. I've lost a little over 500 pounds, and I'm alive. And I'm a member of this group. And I go to meetings just about every single day, and I'm very, very proud to be part of this group. And I'm very proud to be up here. And I'm proud to be here with you this morning. 
But let's begin to clear up some of the misconceptions about what this is. Let's begin to clear in our minds what compulsive overeating is or isn't. Because for thousands of years, going back all the way to biblical times, King Solomon, in the book of Solomon in the Old Testament, he philosophized that alcoholics, people that tarry at the wine, or gluttons, was an illness, but he couldn't prove it, and he had no cure for it. Couldn't prove it, he had no cure for it. In the 1640s, there was a guy (coughs) named Dr. Trotter. And Dr. Trotter believed that alcoholism was an illness, But he couldn't prove it, and he had no cure for it. But he believed it was an illness. Now, if you come to my city, not Scottsdale, you come to Chicago, and you are a tourist in Chicago, undoubtedly, when you want to know where some of the touristy kind of places are, you're going to be directed to a street called Rush Street, so named for a man who, in 1790, published a paper that he believed alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't prove it, and he had no cure for it, and his name was Dr. Benjamin Rush. And ironically, Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Hospital was where Dr. Bob did a lot of his early work as well. And Dr. Rush was the first Surgeon General of the United States, and he was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And he believed, and in 1790, he published a paper in which he stated that alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't cure it and he, had, he, had, he couldn't prove it. There have been attempts over the generations to cure alcoholism not knowing what it was. One of those attempts was by a guy in Pennsylvania who was a Quaker minister, and his name was Dr. Graham. And Dr. Graham believed that, that there were two evils in the world, One of them was alcoholism, but they could both be controlled by massive quantities of B12 vitamin. And so he developed a wafer, which was later called a cracker, and he developed that. Dr. Graham's cracker was loaded with B12 to cure masturbation and alcoholism, which he both believed were both were very um, horrible things on our society. And the graham crackers that we give our kids today are a little different. They're cookies, and, you know, I gave my daughter graham crackers too. But uh, that's how that was first developed. Now, in the 1920s in New York City, the preeminent hospital for the treatment of alcoholism, the preeminent hospital for the treatment of drug addiction was the Towns Hospital. And the Towns Hospital in New York City was the place. And... In the 1920s in New York, Charlie Towns owned the Towns Hospital, operated it, owned it. There was a neurologist who was not concerned with alcoholism at all. He was a neurologist, and his name was William Duncan Silkworth. And on October the 29th, 1929, along with many, many, many other Americans and people around the world, he lost everything he had because of his alcoholism. And he knew Charlie Towns, and Charlie Towns gave him a job at the hospital. 
and he came to work there in October of 1929. And he observed these men, primarily men. There were some women, but primarily they were men. And he observed them going in and out of the town's hospital. And he started to formulate an opinion about these men as he watched them. Some of these guys, they'd come in there and they'd be in terrible shape. And they'd fix them up and they'd feed them and they'd care for them medically. And then they would leave and they would never return. Some of these guys, they were a little different dudes. Some of these guys would come in there and they would leave and they'd be back in a few days, a week, certainly a month. They were back in that hospital in worse shape than he had ever remembered them. And they kept going in and out and in and out and in and out. And he started to observe these guys and he started to formulate an opinion that there was something different about these guys. There was something about them that set them apart from not only normal people, but set them apart from the other people in that hospital. And he wrote his opinion in our book after meeting Bill Wilson and treating Bill Wilson. And in the big book, we're going to hear about Bill being hospitalized three times. And Bill asked Dr. William Duncan Silkworth to write his opinion for the book. And Dr. Silkworth said, I will do this for you under one condition. You, don't you dare put my name in there. They'll run me completely out of the medical profession. And if they run me out of the medical profession, I don't have anything to do for a living, so don't you put my name in there. And Bill Wilson said, we will do this, but we will leave your name out. Now, what happened, because you're looking at your book and you think to yourself when you go to page XXVI, uh, that his name is in there. Well, the story on that is in 1949, the noted psychiatrist Harry Tebow published a paper in 1949 between the 10th printing of the first edition and the 11th printing of the first edition in which he believed that alcoholism was an illness and it was accepted by the American Psychiatric Association and accepted by the American Medical Association. And in 1949, Silkworth said to Bill Wilson, you can put my name in there now if you want to. <laughs> and Dr. Silkworth died in 1951. So for two years of his life, his name appears in our book. But Dr. Silkworth remains to this day our great medical benefactor. And everything that we're going to build on in our program today, every piece of knowledge that he put down is going to be foundation to what we're going to do. Now, is it odd or is it God that in his life he is about to come in contact with Bill? But that's for later on. Let's go, if you want to follow with me, on page XXV, the doctor's opinion. It says simply, we of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter to whom it may concern. 
I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient, Bill Wilson, who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. Now, I have to ask myself a question when I read that. Am I hopeless? Without divine help, can I control this myself? Can I do this myself? And the answer I have to come up with is no. And I have to get out of my head and stop trying. I have tried to control this and cerebralize this. And oh, aha, voila, I have a new food planner. Voila, I'm going to become a vegan or I'm going to become kosher or I'm going to become this or I'm going to become a vegetarian or whatever. And those are not bad things to be. I'm not knocking any one of those things. But those things in and of themselves are not going to cure me of this incurable illness. Okay. In the course of his third treatment, and we're going to read about all three of Bill's hospitalizations. The reason I'm doing it, and I can see you laughing, is because there's no cups up there that are decent. It, it's either that or whatever. Okay. He acquired certain... I just wanted to address it. I could see you. Okay. Concerning <laughs> a possible means of, of, of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men in their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. And there's that word, recovered. You say that in a meeting today and people, oh, who does he think he is? I am recovered from this illness. I'm not cured from it, but I've had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. And I don't compulsively overeat today because I don't want to. I don't refrain from compulsive overeating today because of some modicum of willpower, which I've already told you I lack. I am refraining from compulsive overeating today because I no longer want to partake in excess food. And that came about as the result of a spiritual awakening that I've had through the steps. <coughs> to you. L'chaim. I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. Now, I'm going to make an assumption. The Weight Watchers... The tops, the Nutrisystem, the gyms, the surgeries, the gastric bypasses, the lap bands, the treatment centers, they didn't work for you or you wouldn't be sitting here this morning. If those worked for you, you probably wouldn't be here. So I'm making an assumption. But if I have to look at this and say, with other methods had failed completely, am I in that category? You Bet I'm in that category. These facts, bottom of XXV, 25 in Roman numerals, these facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group. They may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. Very truly yours, William D. Silkworth. The physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe. Now, that word must is the key to the whole thing. We hear this in meetings. Well, you can work at your own way and work at your own pace and do this. And do. If you want to die in the food, you can. But if you're going to recover, there are some things you're going to must have to do. 
I know that's a terrible sentence. We must have to do. It's the only thing I could think of. But anyway, you're, these are the, there are some things I'm going to have to do. And there's no way around them. Okay, so let's look at what he's telling me. I must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. Now, this is groundbreaking information. Because up until now, every philosopher that thought about alcoholism, that thought about gluttony or addiction, they believed that it was a state of mind, that it was weak will, laziness, lack of willpower. Isn't that what you've heard your whole life? Just push yourself away from the table? Isn't that what you heard your whole life? You know, don't eat so much, you'll feel better? Wow, they were right. When I would diet with group support and I would lose weight and not eat so much, I felt lots of things better. I felt like killing myself better. I felt crushes on girls better. I felt jealousy better, fear better, anger better. I felt shame, remorse. I felt lots of things much, much better. And as those feelings would burst to the surface inside of me, the only thing my little brain knew to do was to drive me irresistibly into the food. And we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. Now, it did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us. But we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. And this is something that is absolutely groundbreaking information I knew you'd show up. Groundbreaking information that must be taken in and must be absorbed by my brain and by my soul. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy. There's a word that bothered me, this word allergy. We're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As lame in our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little, but as ex-problem drinkers, we can say his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Now, when I first came into Overeaters Anonymous and people would say to me, you can't eat pizza, you're allergic to it. You can't eat Milky Ways and Kit Kats, you're allergic to them. I'd say, wait a minute here, I'm eating five football fields of pizza a week. I'm not breaking out in hives. I don't get itchy, watery eyes. I don't have hives or anything like that. I'm not sneezing. What the hell are you talking about? I'm allergic to pizza and all these things. And they'd say, just don't eat it. And I went to a source of information that many of you remember back in your minds. It's called a dictionary. We didn't have Google back then. Google was a number. It was a one with 100 zeros after it. But anyway, now it's become a whole other thing. But I went to a source of information which has never failed me. It's called the dictionary, and I looked up this word allergy. And like a lot of words, there's different definitions. And one of the definitions of this word allergy fit me exactly. It said an adverse, abnormal reaction to a food, a beverage, or a substance. An adverse, is it harmful? Abnormal, is it like the normal people? Now, if nine out of 10 people get all the food they want every time they sit down to a meal, their reaction is considered normal. In my body, 
when I eat candy, when I eat french fries, when I eat pizza, when I eat certain substances or volumes, the more I eat, the more I want. The more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want. Cue the chipmunks because that's where we're going. The more I eat, the more I want, the more I eat, the more I want. Okay. That reaction, which I did not understand, is abnormal because I assume that because this is the way I was reacting, that this is the way everyone reacts, is considered to be abnormal. So if my reaction to the food is adverse and abnormal, I am considered to be allergic. I am considered to have an allergy. And so this allergy of the body is the first thing that we're talking about. And we're going to get to the other part of it here in just a second. Roanne, where am I? The doctors? Okay, I got it. As laymen, okay, as laymen, our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account I could never account for going in and thinking, I'm just going to eat one Oreo cookie or two. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to eat one cupcake. I'm going to have a piece of cake at the birthday. And then I'd eat five and 10 and 20 and 30 and 50. And I was off to the races. And I could never explain why that was. Why was I so crazy? The more I ate, the more I want. People don't normally react that way. And you go out to lunch with friends and they say, oh, I'm full. And you just want to test power tools on their face. <laughs> what do you mean you're full? What does full mean? Explain this full to me. What are you talking about? Or... My favorite is, oh, that's too sweet. Oh, that's too rich. Yeah, that's why they build bonfires to throw people like you in them. Though we work out our solution, bottom of 26 in Roman numerals, XXVI, though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as an altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is still jittery or befogged. More often than not, it is imperative that a, brain's, that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached as he then has a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. What is he telling you here for the first of three times in this little chapter? You've got to put the food down. Did I say that loud? Did everybody hear me? Before you work the steps, put the food down. You cannot go to an AA meeting and see people that are still drunk and they say, while you're drinking, let's work the steps. They have an expression that applies to us too. Plug the jug. You've got to get a couple of days abstinent. I know it's hard. Don't call me after I give you my number and say, but it's hard. I didn't say it was easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it. But you can do it. You can do it for a couple of days. And then once you've got a couple of days clean, now we can work the steps. You've got to put the food down. That's the first of three times he's going to tell you that. The doctor writes, top of... 27 in Roman numerals, XXVII. The doctor writes, the subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. 
I say this after many years' experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. That's the town's hospital. There was therefore a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. We're going to cover the next paragraph twice. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultramodern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. What's he telling you there? He's a doctor. He's a scientist. He's not a man of, of, of alcoholism. He's not a man of spirituality. He's a doctor. He's a physician, and he's approaching it. And when he says we, he means doctors. Now, let's change some of the concepts so we can understand it a little better and see if this doesn't give you a better understanding. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of spiritual awakening was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond medicine's conception. What with medicine's ultramodern standards, medicine's scientific approach to everything, Excuse me. Doctors are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of God that lie outside our medical knowledge. Does it make more sense now? What is he telling you there? He is telling you, we understand what's wrong with you, and guess what? You're screwed. Because there's not a damn thing we can do for you. Because if a doctor had the pill, the potion, the surgery... If they had a way of curing you, they would do it, and we as a society would make them richer than Bill Gates and Buffett put together. They would have the wealth of Midas. You find the doctor that can cure obesity, and you'll find the richest man in the world. But the richest man in the world isn't as powerful as God, and that's where we need to turn our attention, is to a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. Many years ago... One of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital, and while here, he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once. Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here, and with some misgiving, we consented. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. <clears throat> Excuse me, the unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power, which is capitalized, it's God, which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological, spiritual measures can be of maximum benefit. What is he telling you for the second of three times? Put the food down. You cannot, I'm going to say this again because, damn it, there's going to be somebody here that's going to call me tomorrow or Wednesday or in a week or a month, and I'm still eating. Will you work me through the steps? Put the food down, and then we can start working the steps. 
We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the, man, the, the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all, and once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Let's take a look at this from the first thing to the second thing. Once having lost their self-confidence, how am I supposed to maintain any type of self-confidence when every score on my report card was an F? When everything I tried failed, there were temporary times when I would lose some weight temporarily, but my weight that I lost always sent out for reinforcements. If I lost 100, I would gain back 200. If I lost 200, I would gain back 300. The weight I lost always seemed to send out for reinforcements. It was sort of like these candles that you buy for birthday cake that are gags. You cannot blow them out. They seem to go out for a hot second, but you can't really blow them out. And that was exactly what I was doing with weight. And of course I lost confidence. I lost confidence because I did not feel equal to other people. I lost confidence because they could do something I couldn't do. They could buy clothes in a normal store, wear them and look good, and I could not do something that simple. No matter how I looked in that mirror and how many times I thought of what I looked like, a 400-pound person wearing a pair of pants does not look like a 171-pound person wearing wearing the same kind of pants. They just don't, and they never will. And unless I'm going to get circus mirrors and install them on everybody's eyeglasses, I'm not going to look like the 171-pound boys. I'm going to be the 400-pound boys, and I'm going to be the guy that all the girls are going to say, does Fred like me? Do you think Fred thinks I'm cute? And that's who I'm going to be for the rest of my life. And then it says, once having lost their self-confidence, but then let's take a look at also what it says here. It says their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. When we talk about reliance upon things human, I'm thinking that if you would only stop doing this or you would only start doing that, that somehow my life would get better. That if I had money, if I had a girlfriend, if I had a pony, if I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning, I'd hammer in the, in the evening, I'd hammer all over this land. If I had these things, then everything would be fantastic, and that's absolutely not true. And it says here, there are pr- problems pile up on them. Now, if I took a pie chart, notice how I like to use food analogies? If I took a pie chart of a normal person in their brain, there'd be a section in there for work, and it'd be a pretty big section, work. Then they'd have another section for their marriage or their relationships, their children and their friends and their hobbies and the things that they like to do. There'd be a normal section of each thing in their pie chart. I had a pie chart with one word in it, food. I spent every moment of my life either eating or not eating, eating or not eating, eating or not eating. That was all my life. And the monkey chatter in my head, the monkey chatter, the self-talk in my head was so vicious. If I talk to you that way, my ex-wife said to me many years ago, if you talk to your friends the way you talk to yourself, would you have any? 
Would you have any? No, I would not. Because I berated myself unmercifully because I lacked the ability to, on my own, decide how much food I was going to eat and how little I was going to eat and how much I wanted to weigh and my body image and my size and the way I looked. And I believed that there was some part of me that if I was just better, stronger, smarter, if I was just thinner, I would be able to control these things and these things would then be okay. And I, of course, couldn't. Rowan? Thank you. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. That means people begging me, bribing me, browbeating me. I had a counselor at day camp when I was a kid, and he took a stick off a tree, and he was make-believing that I was a horse, and he was beating me on the rear end with the stick. Boom! Ah, 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 because I was so fat. And I pretended it didn't hurt, but I ran off and cried. It hurt, and it was humiliating, and it was horrible, and everybody laughed at me. And I started to wonder, what prenatal felony had I committed to doom myself to this kind of life? Who had I hurt? I knew inside I was a good person, but the feedback I was getting from everyone in my environment was, you're unacceptable because of the amount of food you eat and because of the amount of weight on your body. You are absolutely unacceptable the way you are. And so, of course, I couldn't function. Of course, I thought about death. Of course, I thought about killing myself. Of course, I didn't know how to live in this world. I didn't know how to go from one day to the next. I didn't know how to live. How would I know? I only could guess at what was normal. I never saw normal. I never never lived in normal. How was I going to know what was normal? I saw all of you in your homes, with your friends, with your, with your families, with your backyards, with your ponies, with your hammers, whatever you had, and I could only wish to be like you, but inside I knew I never would be like you, and I gave up. I was a quitter. I never knew how to follow through on things. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. Now, the reason you're probably still sitting here is because you probably don't know where else to go, but you'd go if you could. No. The, pro- the reason that you're probably still sitting here is because the message that I'm giving you right now has definitely weight. The message that I'm giving you is coming from a place where only the language of the heart can be spoken and understood. If you are a compulsive overeater, then you can understand what I'm saying, and you can take it, and I can understand you as well. And that there are people in this room that have experienced this. That there is some sort of unspoken bond between you and other compulsive overeaters that just comes through in a way that's undeniable and beautiful. We know who each other's are. You don't have to sit and tell me your life story. I can tell the way you deal with food. I can look at your buffet plate. I can just have a very slight amount of conversation with you and I know it's there. I understand the language of the heart, and I try to speak the language of the heart. It is one of the most beautiful things in the entire world, and that message must have depth and weight. And we're going to talk a lot about step 12 tomorrow morning before I let you go to the, um, to the final close. But we're going to talk about this, and you have a responsibility. If you're here, and I've come here from Arizona, and you're in, this, in, you're in this session, then I'm going to charge you with the responsibility 
to pass this recovery on. Not Harlan's recovery, your recovery, wrapping it around this book. I'm going to charge you to do that. And we don't have to look any further sometimes than the rooms that we're sitting in. You know, we spend a lot of money and a lot of effort and a lot of time trying to attract people into the door of Overeaters Anonymous. And we should continue doing that. That's a good thing to do. But in the meetings you're attending, there are people sitting right beside you that are dying from their untreated addiction and we are hugging each other to death. We are literally hugging each other to death. So instead of keep coming back, keep coming back, can we talk? Can we talk? Can, can I do anything to help you? This is the message I'm going to charge, this is the job I'm going to charge you with. Whether you're listening to this on a tape or a podcast, or you're sitting in this room on uh, June the 27th, 2015, that's my charge to you, is to pass this on. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. If any feel as psychiatrist directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental. Let them stand with us a while on the firing line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. Now this paragraph that we're going to read right now is one of those foundation stones on which we are going to build the entire program. Now before we read this paragraph, I want to make one thing that he, very clear that he is going to talk about here, and I want to clear this up, and I want you to hear me. If you're not sleeping, pay attention. Some of you are asleep, I understand. But that's, I want you to, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this in your soul that what he is about to tell you is that food is never the problem. I want you to hear me say it. I'm going to say it two more times. Food to the compulsive overeater is never the problem. If you are a non-compulsive overeater and you get into some trouble with food and weight, then food is the problem. And you go to Weight Watchers, you get a food plan, you get some accountability, you lose your weight, you're fine. Go to the gym, you're fine. If you are a compulsive overeater, food is never the problem. Food is the answer to the problem. What is the problem? Now, all human beings have... I don't usually get them crying unless I ask them on a date. All human beings have emotions. You don't have emotions because you're a compulsive overeater. You have emotions because you're a human being. All human beings have happiness, sadness, guilt, shame, remorse, jealousy. All human beings feel these emotions. In a normal human being, these emotions dissipate quite nicely through time-tested activities. Perhaps having a glass of wine, and they're good. Perhaps going to the gym, and they're good. Walking the dog, having sex, watching a TV program, 
pounding their hand on the desk. Whatever that may be to those people, these frustrations, these emotions are dissipated easily and quickly. Not so with us. Because what we're going to talk about now is the mental part of the illness. That in you, if you are a compulsive overeater, food is never the problem. See, I told you I was going to say it two more times. You didn't think I was going to do it, did you? I've got this down. I know what I'm doing. Okay, now, the bottom line is, when these emotions build and build and build and build, what do they cause in a compulsive overeater? Massive amounts of pain. Emotional pain. That when we're not eating, we feel horrible. And the pain of not eating is so horrible that you convince yourself that maybe this time it'll be okay. Maybe this time you can eat safely. Maybe this time it won't be so bad. And so you pick up the food because you're in this emotional pain because the pain of eating is the only thing, or the, excuse me, the relief from eating is the only thing you know. And that relief comes from the effect. Food is doing something for the compulsive overeater that it does not do for the normal eater. It gives us a sense of ease and comfort. Food does something for me that it does not do for Ned Normal and Nancy Normal. It gives me that sense of relief. Now, where does that pain come from? It comes from the buildup of human emotion. Now, what we're going to endeavor to do in our programs is this. If the buildup of human emotions is the problem, and the human emotions are building and building and building, and there is a part of the brain that we're going to look at called the mental twist. The mental twist is that part of the brain on the emotional side which says, eat some food. That was supposed to knock, but it didn't work. Eat some food. And the intelligent part of the brain says, no, 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 don't you dare eat that food. And anytime there's a conflict between the emotional part of the brain and the intelligent part of the brain, the emotional part of the brain will win in a walk every time. So it begs the question, if the mental twist is dragging me by the hair into the food and the physical allergy is making it impossible for me to stop, if I can't stop because of the allergy and I can't stay stopped because of the twist of the mind, I am absolutely powerless over food and my life is unmanageable. That admission is the first step. I can't eat because of the allergy and I cannot keep from eating because of the twist of the mind, I'm powerless. So it begs the question, what if I could find a way to live where my mind does not lock in on the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly from eating food? What if I could find a way to live where I already feel better? What if I could find a way to live where these emotions do not build to the level where they demand relief from that from <laughs> relief from the pain through food. The process of bringing 
a recovery, bringing God into the equation so as to lower the level of emotional buildup so that it doesn't become toxic is called recovery. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. This is about a substitution of the emotional buildup, or excuse me, in a substitution to lessen the emotional buildup through a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps to substitute the relief that you get from the food for the relief that you get from working the steps. And if you do that, then your higher power will do for you slowly what the food will do for you instantly and with none of the devastating, death-defying side effects. Now, I'm going to just encapsulate that very briefly because, again, we're pushing for time. Normally, I have a Friday night session that kind of does the doctor's opinion, and, and in this forum, I don't get that, so we have to kind of move through quickly. You cannot eat because of the allergy, and you can't keep from eating because of the mental twist. Your nationality has nothing to do with it. Your parents have nothing to do with it. Your religion has nothing to do with it. Your whatever has nothing to do with it. This is who you are. This is what you are. This is what you are. This is who you are. And unless changed by a spiritual awakening, you will die in the illness because this is fatal and progressive. It gets worse over time, never better. As we slow down, our metabolism slows, our joints start to hurt, and what does the pain do? It wakes up the mental twist. The mental twist drags you into the food. Once you're in the food, you trigger the allergy. The allergy makes it impossible to stop. And this is a cycle, and we could repeat that and repeat that in words, but you've been repeating that and repeating that in your life long before you got in this room because this is the cycle of death that we have been living with our entire lives. To one degree or another, every compulsive overeater lives this either a thousand and seven, a thousand and two, or a million and whatever it is, over and over and over again until one day you say, Please give me the gastric bypass. Please give me the lap band. Please give me the, the fen-fen. Please give me the, another shot at treatment. Until you are affected by a spiritual awakening, nothing is going to interrupt the cycle. And when they develop a, uh, an operation for my head, for my brain, maybe. Maybe. But so far they haven't done that. Alcoholics drink because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. I'm at the bottom of 28, XXVIII. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, we know we're killing ourselves, we do it anyway. Did you ever watch the hand of a compulsive overeater about to pick up a bag of Doritos at the store? They always wave their hand. Uh, I'm just going to get, okay. They wave their hand and then they pick it up. When the hand comes back, next time you see someone binging in the grocery store, watch the hand. When the hand goes like this, the next thing is they pull up the, the, the donut or whatever it is they're doing. Okay. 
the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. When they say we can't differentiate the true from the false, does that mean we think that San Diego, California is really in New Jersey? No. What it means is we cannot tell ourselves with certainty that we're not compulsive overeaters, that this is not something that affects us. This is something that is so ingrained in us that sometimes we don't even see it. We don't even freaking see it, and we tell ourselves, this time we're just going to eat one. This time we're just going to eat two. And we know darn well that that's not the case. I never started a gallon of ice cream in my life that I didn't finish. Only this time when I get this home, I'm just going to eat half. Oh, come on. Who was I kidding? I've never started a gallon of ice cream in my life that I didn't finish. Okay, to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontent unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. And impunity just means indifference. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again, and this is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, spiritual awakening, there is very little hope of his recovery. Now, I want you to know that this paragraph is a paragraph that if I am your sponsor, we will probably say that back and forth 20 zillion times in the course of a very short while. That this is the illness described in paragraph form. That this is it. When he says we have, uh, what is it, irritable discontent, right? Throw in fear, guilt, shame, remorse, jealousy. Throw in all these other human emotions. And that is the crux of the problem. It is the buildup of human emotions which causes the intenable pain, the unbearable pain that comes about in our life as the result of not eating. And when we're not eating, we feel terrible. That's why diets don't work. Intelligently, why would you ever pick up food ever having, after having lost some weight? Why would you ever pick up food after going on a successful diet? Because you cannot bear the pain of these emotions. You cannot bear it. On the other hand, I'm on 29 in Roman numerals XXIX. On the other hand, as strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change, spiritual awakening, has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems, he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for food. <clears throat> Excuse me, Rowan. The only efforts, thanks, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. And what are the rules? They are the steps. Men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal. Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. Faced with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it is often not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, we physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely 
necessarily a problem of mental control. I have had many men who have had, who had, for example, worked a period of months on a certain date, months on a, some problem or business deal, which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date and the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. So if you have an important meeting in a couple of days that you may think is going to be settled favorably to you, what do you think was building up in these men? Human emotions, fear, selfishness. They didn't know if the thing would go their way. They weren't quite sure how the meeting was going to go. And so these emotions would begin to build in these men. And what did the emotions do? Drag them by the hair into the food by waking up the mental twist. The twist drove them into the food. And the food triggered the allergy, didn't it? The fig triggered the allergy. So they passed through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink that way again or not to eat that way again. And they couldn't control the amount they ate because of the allergy and they couldn't keep from eating because of the mental twist. So that's what you see right there that tells you that food is never the problem. Food is the answer to the problem if you are one of us. Roanne? Oh, yeah, thanks. There are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. The classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and in much detail is outside the scope of this book. There are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We are all familiar with this type. They are always going on the wagon for keeps. They are over-remorseful and make many resolutions but never a decision. A little later on this morning, or a little later on this afternoon, we're going to cover step three in chapter chapter 5, and we're going to find out that step 3 is both a decision and a beginning. It's a de beginning and a decision. Okay. Wow. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. Just sit down, listen, and enjoy. Don't worry about it. Okay. They can leave. I won't stop them. There's no lock on the door. Yes, but let me finish the doctor's opinion and then we'll take a five-minute break, I promise you, okay? I promise. Okay, there is a type. All right, I'm going to finish the doctor's opinion then I promise you we're going to take five minutes to go potty because I got kidneys and a bladder too. There is the type of man who is unwilling to admit he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. There is the type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. There is the manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and about whom a whole chapter could be written. Then there are the types entirely normal in every respect except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, friendly people. All these and many others have one thing in common. Sorry, one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. 
The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. This immediately precipitates us into a seething cauldron of debate. Much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. What is the solution? Perhaps I can best answer this by relating one of my experiences. About one year prior to this experience, a man was brought in to be treated for chronic alcoholism. He had but partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage and seemed to be a case of pathological mental deterioration. He had lost everything worthwhile in life and was only living, one might say, to drink. He frankly admitted and believed that for him there was no hope. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. One year later, he called to see me, and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partly recognized his features, but there all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment contentment. I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel that I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger. So he left me. A long time has passed with no return to alcohol. So you see that who he's talking about here is Bill. And after Bill was separated from alcohol, and after Bill started going to the Oxford group, and after Bill started working the six-step program in the Oxford group movement, and had his spiritual experience in the hospital, that he was a changed man, that he looked different. He sounded different. He functioned different. He was altered. And we're going to read this afternoon on page 63, we were reborn. And to be reborn is, is in, in essence, the very truth of what has happened to me in this program. And if we work the steps, it will happen to you too. When I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case. This is Hank Parker's. When I think of another case brought in by a physician prominent in New York, the patient had made his own diagnosis and decided his situation hopeless, had hidden in a deserted barn determined to die. He was rescued by a searching party and in desperate condition brought to me. Following his physical rehabilitation, he had a talk with me in which he frankly stated that he thought the treatment a waste of effort unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, that in the future he would have the willpower to resist the impulse to drink. And that's what we're looking for is someone to give us the willpower. If you came here this morning hoping I'm going to say something that's going to give you the willpower to stay on your diet, you're wasting your time. I have no such thing. If I, if I could, I would have said it to myself when I was three years old. His alcoholic problem was so complex and his depression so great that we felt his, own, uh, his only hope would be through what we then called moral psychology and doubted if even that would have any effect. However, he did become sold on the ideas contained in this book. He has not had a drink for a great many years. I see him now and then, and he is as fine a specimen of manhood as one could wish to meet. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through. And though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. William D. Silkworth, MD. Let's go take five-minute potty break, and we'll come back. <laughs>